Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowerking.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book five of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, part one, chapters four through seven. Let's start the show. In this section, our quartet has a palaver about Eddie and Jake's Todash, and they make a lot of connections before making a plan to save the tower. They then meet Father Callahan and learn what the townspeople of Callabrin Sturgis want. Although they are wary when they first meet, the townspeople and the quartet seem to come to an understanding. After dinner, the quartet all go Todash. Roland, Eddie, and Jake are mesmerized by the rose while Susanna and Oi encounter some Walking Dead. It's not quite as fun as The Walking Dead in the TV show, but spooky nonetheless. Is that fun? I haven't actually seen The Walking Dead. Uh, I stopped a while ago because it stopped being fun. So, Jay, you may have noticed that in my intro, I pronounced the name of the town, Colabrin Sturgis. Indeed you did. I've gone away from my normal Midwestern... Calabrin Sturgis and the Wolves of the Cala, which is what I've been calling it up until now. But we finally get some actual king giving us direction on how to say words in the book, which I think many of our listeners will be happy about because you'd be surprised how many emails and tweets we get saying, you guys are killing me with your pronunciation. <laughs> it's Keuthbert. <laughs> I think I'm the primary one to blame here because I'm stubborn and will not change my mind on things. But uh, since Stephen King gives us very precise directions on how to say this, I know, <laughs> yeah, I know how to I say it. I wouldn't say precise, but through Susanna's commentary, he tells us Callahan and Kala are not pronounced the same. So we know that for a fact. And we know that Callahan is pronounced Callahan. So Kala has to at least not sound like Kala. So I am still putting a little bit of my own interpretation on this, but I'm going to go with Kala as if it's like, you know, I'm going to make a phone a Kala. It's a Kala, <laughs> you know, like Kala Bryn Sturgis. Yeah, I, despite having talked to speech therapist on a regular basis. I have a cousin who's a speech therapist. I have a aunt who's a speech pathologist. Both of my daughters have gone to speech therapist for school. Um, King tries to tell us exactly how to position your tongue to say it, and I still can't figure it out. So I'm going to defer to you and say Kala from now on. What's odd about this is, and I do not listen to the audiobooks for this. I know some of our listeners are following along with us by listening to the audiobooks. And I did pick up this book as an audiobook because I wanted to know how to pronounce it. And at the beginning of the book, the narrator says Kala. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, so I must be right. I think I even mentioned this on an earlier episode. And so that's why I've been saying Kala. But I don't know if he switches halfway through the book. So if you're one of those folks who is listening to the audiobook, I'd be interested to hear how the narrator handles that when they get to that passage. Does he all of a sudden switch from saying Calibrin Sturgis to Calibrin Sturgis? Does the Wolves of the Cala that he introduced the book as become Wolves of the Cala by the end? I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to stick with Cala, Calibrin Sturgis. And I learned recently that the rest of the name of the town is 
two further illusions by King. The Bryn is short for Yul Brynner. Who was a gunslinger in Westworld. Right. And even more to the point, a gunslinger in The Magnificent Seven, which the plot of this book, you know, very much parallels and borrows from. Sure. Um, and then the Sturgis comes from John Sturgis, the film's director of The Magnificent Seven. Ah. So King's really like doubling and tripling down on the whole Magnificent Seven links here. And if you recall, I believe there's a quote by King in the beginning of the opening pages of the book that he quotes from The Magnificent Seven, we deal in lead. And then Roland says the same line later to the townsfolk of the Kala. Yes. Yeah, you, you refer to the epigraph to the book in which King quotes Steve McQueen in The Magnificent Seven saying, Mr., we deal in lead. That's right. And then, as you said, in this section is when Roland repeats it. There's two other epigraphs. We didn't discuss this in our last episode, but Roland DeShane of Gilead, first comes smiles, then lies, last is gunfire. Solid. Mm -hmm. And then a poem by Rodney Crowley, the blood that flows through you flows through me. When I look in any mirror, it's your face that I see. Take my hand, lean on me. We're almost free, wandering boy. So we'll see how these play out as we continue to read. So in addition to pulling from movies, as we've pointed out, King does a lot of literary dropping in this section, much as he's done throughout the series. But uh, there's a fairly in-depth passage early on about Dickens. And when they're discussing the Toad Ash, they're talking about all these coincidences and how all of a sudden Balazar has shown up and how weird this is. And Susanna points out that this is a lot like Dickens, that he wrote a whole series of books in which characters would keep running into each other throughout London. And she says it's, it really relied on a lot of easy coincidences. And Roland says, ah, he did not know of Ka. Mm -hmm. and, and this is one of, you know, obviously this is King, as, as you like to say, Jay hanging a, a lantern on the fact that, hey, right. we, can, we can excuse some of these coincidences that I'm coming up with because other authors have done it, as well mm -hmm. as I've got Ka to help square the circle here. Yep. But Dickens isn't the only author that is mentioned. Um, Jake talks a lot about mystery novels that he's read along the way when he says, you know, we have to come up with this scheme to figure out. He's like, this reminds me of, and he lists off a bunch of... Uh, authors that he's familiar with and read, which seemed a little odd for a 10-year-old to be reading quite as much uh, mysteries as he did. But eh, He did go to a fancy prep school. Yeah, I'm not sure if fancy prep schools would have uh, hard-boiled crime novels, but... That's true. <laughs> he'd be more likely to be quoting Dickens. <laughs> yeah, he'd be more likely to be quoting Dickens. But who knows, maybe his father had optioned some in his work as a TV executive. Um, Suzanne also mentions Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which mm -hmm. uh, is another one. And there's just all this discussion of books and how important books are. You know, a lot of what happened in the Toad Ash was going to the the bookstore, and we've seen throughout references to books. The whole piece last section when we talked about the playing around of genres and the stews. I mean, King's being very frank and upfront with the literary aspects of it. Yeah. He's basically taking a further exploration of storytelling itself. Just like the entire book of Win Through the Keyhole did. And we talked about how was that King's opportunity to kind of pump the brakes on the main narrative? Like if he felt he had the time to pump the brakes when writing book five, he might have actually written Wind Through the Keyhole and explored more storytelling there to its full extent. 
but here he's just sort of like taking little you know nibbles at it by just mentioning these other books and mentioning these other genres. It reminds me a lot of sort of this idea of metafiction where fiction about fiction and where characters in the book or the author is really shining a light on the fact that, hey, I know I'm writing a book and I'm aware of the conceits and the tropes and how a book works. And I'm just going to to let you as a reader know that I'm aware of it and we're we're here together reading this book. I know that you know that I know that you know. Exactly. And and then we all take the Iocane powder together and and we're <laughs> we're well on our way. But what's interesting about this and I've done a lot of reading of metafiction and and I really enjoy this when it's done good, when it's done poorly it can come off as either pretentious or just sort of silly. And so far I've found neither of that here with King I've never thought that King was a pretentious writer. I don't think anybody does. Certainly not. Well, sometimes he can come off as silly. I don't think he's doing it here yet. We'll we'll see how how the books progress. But it started to make me wonder about some of the things that are happening in the book. And there's a decent section where Eddie's and Roland are having a one-off discussion without anybody else around. And Eddie starts complaining about reality and how he says, this doesn't seem real to me. You know, there, there's all this is happening and I know there's consequences and I know things are, are happening, but I still can't get my head around the fact that this is reality. And I think part of that is because he's moving between worlds, you know, his own world and this mm-hmm. new, this other world, which is like a fantasy world to him. And yet he's living it. And so I don't know what's happening here or what's going on, but the fact that King isn't hiding this or shuffling it under the rug that he's making a big deal of it makes me start to think that there's more going on here. You know, we've already talked about how what happened in book four was a lot like the Wizard of Oz and what was happening in book five drew on a lot of things. And it just seems like it's continuing on here. And I don't know where it's going, but I'm interested to see where it's going. And within the framework of the Dark Tower, King has the opportunity to literally bring other stories and other books to life, like he did with the Crystal Palace from The Wizard of Oz. That is a story from our fiction. It's a it's a made-up story, but when they were hiking down I-70 through Topeka, it was a real thing. Yep. It became real in Roland's world. So the other worlds than these constructs means that we could have things that are fiction in one world, but are real in another. And I think that doubling and trebling of of realities and experiences, like going Todash, then you, I don't blame Eddie for starting to feel like reality is getting thin here. Like like which one's real and which one's just a you know virtual reality? Or are they all real realities? I just have different ways of experiencing them. Yeah. And I would get totally jumbled up with that too. Yeah, because it's one thing for them to jump in a world that's like the stand and mm-hmm. us saying, oh, well, okay, I could sort of see that maybe Stephen King's books are interrelated in some way or Stephen King's saying, hey, look, we can jump into other worlds and this one's like the stand and this one's like that. But then to have an actual character from Salem's Lot become a character in the Dark Tower series in Father Callahan is one thing. And then to have Stephen King be mentioned as an author in the world that when they go Todash and see Stephen King's name, that's when you start to say, wow, there's something important happening here. Yeah. As the author, as the 
the person who has imagined all of this into existence, he should always be one level, one layer removed from it all. Yep. There should never be a way for it to be aware of him. And they are now that they can walk through this New York, <laughs> this version of New York. And Stephen King is a person there. He's yeah. an author there. He's not just some guy with the same name who lives in the same place. He does the same job. Yep. And his job <laughs> is creating fiction. And where does the rabbit hole end here? Right? Yeah. I, I think it'll be fun to explore that. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it, it takes an expert to be able to do that because it can get, like I said, pretty silly pretty quick if you have it collapse on itself pretty easily. Um, it's sort mm -hmm. of the opposite problem. We mentioned The Walking Dead earlier. It's sort of the opposite problem of The Walking Dead, where everyone in that world has to pretend that there's no such thing as a, they've never heard of a zombie before. You know, really like, like every like four years in, they're still like, well, what's a zombie? Well, not what's a zombie, but like they don't have that word even because. If you wake, I mean, if you or I woke up and all of a sudden they were walking dead around us and they shambled towards us and you had to, you know, shoot them in the head to kill them, we'd be like, oh, those are zombies. I've read about mm -hmm. those and I've, but every zombie movie is sort of like that, right? Like people are unaware that there's such a thing as a zombie um, because it wouldn't make sense. Otherwise, it would be very easy to say, hey, hey, there's zombies all around us. I know how to fix this because I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was 12 years old and here's mm -hmm. how we deal with it. Um, so you have to have that suspension of disbelief to make the world seem like it has stakes and importance. And this is the opposite problem where, hey, wait a minute, I know how to solve the Wizard of Oz riddle because I've seen the Wizard of Oz. What we need to do is tap our heels three times while we're wearing the ruby slippers and things will be, get us home. Um, or the ruby cowboy boots. Or Exactly, as the case <laughs> may be. Anyhow, I don't want to spend too much time on it more than we've done already because I'm sure there's more to come, but the fact that we're starting to see all this come together. Um, so it makes us wonder with the tropes that they set up in the last section about a town on the edge of civilization that needs gunslingers. And it's perfectly set up in such a way like the movies that we're familiar with, that the stories that we're familiar with, it makes you wonder, oh, maybe this isn't just King playing with tropes, but maybe there's a reason for it being set up exactly the way that we expect it to be set up when we encounter this sort of situation. We shall see. So as our Coptet makes its way along the beam, and they, they realize that they're heading towards this town called Colabrin Sturgis. I think another name for the town could be Info Dump City, because <laughs> this whole section of the book seems to just be in much the same way the first half of part one was table setting. It was introducing us to all of the players and helping us get a grip on what the plot was going to maybe spin up to. This second half of part one is all about just dumping all this information on us. We learn about the wolves. We learn a lot of detail about the wolves. We learn about uh, Father Callahan and that he has Black 13 of the Wizard's Glass. And we get a good chunk, just enough to be tantalizing, of Jericho Hill. We learn how the tower works and how it keeps bad things from happening. We even get the exact years that each of the New York Cotet and Father Callahan left their earth, left their where and when to come to Roland's world. And so it's just like info dump, info dump, info dump. And it's interesting and fascinating. Like these are things and details that we've either been wondering about for a long time or we're going to very much need for the rest of the story to make sense. 
but it just felt like a lot of exposition yep. all at once. At least King was smart enough of a writer to put the table setting in front of the info dump, because if you had started off with 100 pages of info dump, that would be a very tedious read. But the fact that we got a little bit of action in the first section, you know, Susanna turning into Mia and mm -hmm. having that weird adventure in the swamp, um, Jake and Eddie going toe dash, the townspeople with their big discussion of the wolves coming. I mean, th that was at least table setting and interesting and sort of gripping the reader with a lot of, ooh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then we get the, okay, now we're going to info dump, info dump, info dump, which is not yeah. necessarily the best way to to turn pages and keep intri intrigued with the book, um, especially when not only is it an info dump, but as I mentioned in my intro, we see characters, and it's always good to have smart characters. Like I think that that's one of the tips of writing is always make your characters as smart as they can be so that they can figure things out. But our characters in mm -hmm. this info dump section, especially the palaver, they figure out a lot of things really quickly on not a lot of information. Yeah, it's almost like they intuit all of this stuff. They're like, oh yeah, so this person knows this, and Tower must have been Dutch because his name should have been that, which is a common name. And it's just like, boy, they made a lot of jumps that I don't know if I would have been able to make, especially if I was either a 10-year-old boy or a, a, a former junkie. Yeah, I mean, you and I kind of gave Eddie a hard time for the watership down Richard Adams Shardick connection that he that's like subconscious to him. He he still hasn't no. put that together. But he's but he's still curious why does the bear make him think of rabbits, right? So is he really gonna say, hmm, yeah, Torin. That sounds like Dutch. And he must have changed that <laughs> legally to Tower. And I bet if I looked up a Dutch to English dictionary, Torin actually means tower in English. So, of course, that's what happened. Like, it's like, ta-da, yeah. it all falls into place. Yeah. How convenient. And fine, whatever. Move the story along. I mean, I don't want, yeah. what I don't want is to read another 10 pages of them saying, okay, let's toe dash to a bookstore so we can find a Dutch to English dictionary and figure that out. So, it's better to just... <laughs> Figure it out in a couple of pages and let's let's be on our way. Okay, I understand now. This is what you need to do. You need to figure out a way of getting Susanna's money, or I'm sorry, Odetta's money in such a way that you can use mm -hmm. it so that you can buy the lot and you can move things forward. And that's how we're going to save the rose and save the universe and everyone will be happy. So, all right, I've, I understand. You've got your plan now and you've made it. Let's, let's move on and, 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 and be gone with Info Dump City. Yep. But like you said, there's some interesting here stuff here, especially the Callahan and the Black Thirteen. And I was also wondering, Jay, what color were the wolves' horses? Apparently, they're gray. Gray, huh? Yeah, <laughs> gray. Gray horses. Yeah, gray. Gray horses. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so they're gray. Yeah. Gray horses. <laughs> They spend a lot of time on those gray horses. <laughs> I assume we're supposed to take something away from that. Uh, I was thinking, are they robot horses? Are they armored horses? Are they not really horses? They're motorcycles? Like, I have no idea, but um, Eddie and Roland sure seem to think it's important. I think that they are the junkyard motorcycles from Transformers the movie who speak only in TV commercials. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, 
on the planet where Weird Al sings Dare to be Stupid, if I'm correct. It is. It's the very same. The best Devo song ever. <laughs> so, Well, what did you think of the description of the wolves besides the gray horses? No telling for sure what they are. They look like men, but they wear masks. Wolf mask, eye lady, wolf masks, gray as their horses. Gray horses, huh? Yeah. They wear gray pants that look like skin, black boots with cruel big steel spurs, green cloaks and hoods. And the mask. We know their mask because they've been found left behind. They look like steel, but rot in the sun like flesh. Buggardly things. So yeah, I mean, that's an example of how it's an info dump. Like We get this very detailed description of these mysterious creatures that are described as wolves, and then they're not wolves, and then they're men dressed as wolves wearing a very specific costume with parts that look like metal but aren't, and things that aren't aren't skin but look like skin like like what is going on here so as much of an info dump as we get they're still left somewhat mysterious we really don't know what we're dealing with here you know are, are these are these some kind of people they're doing the bidding of somebody even more evil or are they robots are they junk transformers speaking in commercials like what is it i don't know yeah it's hard to tell and it's surprisingly that even though just about every one of these townspeople have seen them before, that they're not able to describe them or they've never taken one down or they have can't explain exactly what they are. They just ride into town on a day and take some of the kids and are on their way and then the kids show up later. So yeah, it's it's hard to know what exactly they are. They sound sort of badass though. Mm -hmm. um, anytime you give somebody a cloak, that's just sort of sort of cool. Yeah. A cloak and a gray horse. I mean, you never know what you might get up, get into. Yeah. Yeah, so it's hard to tell. I'm guessing we'll figure out pretty soon, though, because it seems as if Roland is ready to protect the town. That seems to be, you know, last chapter we had all this talk with Callahan about, hey, Callahan, they're going to have to ask for my help. Like, that's what's what needs yep. to be done. You're going to have to ask me the questions, and I can't just come in and do it. You're going to have to, do you know what you're asking for here? Do the townspeople know what they're asking for? And Callahan, you know, that says, yes, I understand. I'll make sure that they know. Um, but by the end of this section, Roland and Eddie are like, you know, we're going to protect them pretty much no matter what. We have to do this because we're the way of the white. We're the good guys. Mm -hmm. It's our duty to do so. I'm not sure I'm a fan of how it's kind of panning out, but I like the fact that there is an order to this. There's an expectation to this, that it has to work in the direction of the party in need needs to request help. If they refuse to do this for whatever reason, pride, lack of understanding, what have you, they will not get help. Like they, yeah. they have to ask for it, but that's all they need to do is ask. Right. And Roland gets so frustrated because at one point he's like, they're going to want, they, it's like they want references or they want letters, but they don't know how to get them like it's he's just like just ask basically mm -hmm. and he's just frustrated because they seem to be talking in circles around like oh well uh that, that. it's like these are the people who are going to help you yeah let's do this and also it's a, i think there's a little bit of maybe personal pride that's that's eating away at roland a little bit um he's probably thinking like i've been doing this job for I don't know, a thousand years or something like that, right? <laughs> like, I have been a gunslinger for a thousand years. I'm the last one 
until I helped to train these new gunslingers who are part of my quartet now. Here we are. We're telling you we're gunslingers. We are the solution to your problem. All you need to do is ask us to help you, and we will help you. And they're like, yeah, but are you really, though? Are you? Can you do what you say you can do? Do you even know how to shoot those guns? And it's like, ah, motherfucker. (laughs) You know, I can just... (laughs) Well, you know, I have to reference my favorite Western, and... The townspeople in Blazing Saddles are very happy when they hear a new sheriff's coming to town. (laughs) But once they see him, they're really not quite sure if he's going to be the one that's going to be able to help them. I don't think it's a question of skills at that point, maybe. So do you want to talk a little bit about how the tower works? I thought this was very fascinating and to have it sort of spelled out. Yeah, no, I think that this is good. I mean, that was one of my complaints earlier in the book is that, you know, We know that Roland is on this quest for the tower, but it's not really clear what's going to happen when he gets there. Like, is he supposed to shoot the tower? Is he supposed to build the tower? Is he supposed to hug the tower? Like, I'm not, I know that that's his mission. And I don't know if Roland exactly knows what's supposed to happen when he gets to the tower. And we're not exactly sure what the tower means. And we get the idea that it's this nexus point and that it's important to all worlds, but how does it do that? What does it mean? And we start to get that, especially in this last section when the group as a whole toadash back to New York and they get to the lot where they see the rose again. Mm-hmm. And so this is Roland's first and as far as we know, only experience with the rose. Yeah. And he's, you know, yet to he hasn't had a vision of the tower like Eddie had, but he had his own much more impactful vision through the pink wizard's glass. And Now that I think back on that, knowing what I've learned here with Roland's vision in the rose, his experience in the pink wizard's glass was almost just like a hypnotic suggestion. It was it wasn't here's a reason, (laughs) it was you must. And there's there's no discussion about this. Like you it is quite simple. You must save the tower. We don't get any more information than that. We don't we're still not told why the tower is important how the tower is in trouble, how Roland can affect any change to that situation. We're just told, or Roland is simply told or commanded, save the tower. That's your mission in life. That is your ka. Go for it. Yep. And that's essentially what happens. It's like he's a robot programmed with that mission. And just like the Terminator, (laughs) you know, he proceeds and he's unstoppable. But here, we finally understand. We know the tower, like you said, is the, the nexus of all things, and all worlds sort of revolve around it. But we understand here there that the tower, in conjunction with the rose, are like two endpoints of an axis, and everything spins around that axis. And those two things work in harmony to keep all of the worst-case scenarios from happening, even whether it's something as big as a plane crash that doesn't happen or somebody not tripping over a curb and twisting their ankle. It's like those things happen far less frequently because of the tower and the rose. And then it starts to make sense. If the tower and the rose stopped doing what they do or if they ceased to exist, then every time somebody stumbles on a curb, every time somebody gets on an airplane, it's going to crash. They're going to break their ankle. 
Like that's why yeah. the world would simply fall apart. That's why all the worlds would fall apart. Or at least that's my interpretation based on this Rose experience. Yeah, that that passage is interesting because it starts off in very specific big ways, right? Eddie saw great things and near misses. And the first one is Albert Einstein is not quite struck by a milk wagon that mm -hmm. could run him over. And Albert Schweitzer doesn't slip in the tub and fall and, and die. And I'm like, oh, did the... It, when I was first reading, I'm like, did those things really happen? Are these actual cases that King's pulled out and said, and I did, didn't know about, but they're not. He's made up all these things because then he starts to get really weird things like, oh, there's a terrorist who could have poisoned half the world if he had just not, this had happened and that had mm -hmm. happened. And I'm like, oh, these are all things in King's imagination that the Rose and the Tower are working in conjunction to stop from happening. And it makes very clear, like, this is what Roland is fighting for. He's fighting on the side of good to prevent these horrible things from happening. Right. And it's not just those big things, but like you said, the small things, the twisting of the ankle, mm -hmm. um, all, all those little things that build up over time and just make the world a worse place. Yeah. I mean, imagine if every time you turn the page in a book, you got another paper cut. <laughs> if without the tower, that's what would happen. It would be the worst. Every time you fall asleep on a beach, a lobstrosity cuts off two of your fingers. Damn it. <laughs> Where was the tower when Roland needed it? It's all right. I shoot with this hand. <laughs> so we also got just a taste of this Battle of Jericho Hill, which is tantalizing in its brevity, right? Yes. It seems like it was Roland's last stand with his comrades. Yeah, not even Roland's, almost Gilead's and yeah. the whole the whole structure of life in that world, like their whole hierarchical structure is going to fall apart here because the good man's forces are pouring in and taking over territory. Right. And they're overwhelmed by the good man's forces. And we learn that Elaine had just died. Jamie DeCurry was already dead. And it was Roland and Cuthbert, Cuthbert, Cuthbert. Yep. <laughs> um, I'll say Cuthbert. Roland and Cuthbert were the last two of the gunslingers alive and Cuthbert was and Cuthbert's was right wounded. on the edge of like, like he, yes and so he bleeding out he blows the horn of eld I think it's called one last time and then they go out guns blazing and that's when Roland's dream of it ends and that's why it's so tantalizingly brief it feels like the end of the battle somehow Roland survives this but everybody else on his side of the the battle dies how yep. does that happen? Like we, we just we're not given that info, so it's a bit frustrating to to get that far into it and not know the rest. And this is the piece of Dark Tower lore that, from my understanding, has really never been told. Like I'm not sure if this is the only piece we get of it, but recently somebody had asked King in a interview in 2017, "Are you ever going to write another Dark Tower book? And if so, could it be about the Battle of Jericho Hill?" So this seems like something that fans have glommed onto as something being very important that they want to see. And King has said he hasn't written that, and maybe he will. I think not only are we tantalized, but people who are deep within the Dark Tower really want to see this and understand what's happening here. And so to get the four or five pages that we get is not enough to uh, to quench the thirst of the Dark Tower fans who who are really into this bit of it. No, not even close. It's interesting there, as I was uh, looking at the Bernie Wrights and illustrations in here, there's a, a drawing of this Jericho Hill moment when Cuthbert is... His, shirt is shredded and he's basically looks like he's lost the use of 
his right arm. So he's shooting with his left arm and Roland is holding him up with his right arm. So his right pistol is holstered and Roland is shooting with his left hand. Yeah. And it's sort of like a predictive echo of Roland later in life when he can't shoot with his right hand. He can only shoot with his left. But they are standing on like the upper lip of one of these monolithic stone faces. And I'd never noticed yeah. that. It's so big in the drawing that Wrightson had done that you kind of have to hold it at arm's length to see it, the Easter Island-like face statue that they're standing on. And yeah. and it's also broken down into small chunks. So it almost looks like the thing from Marvel Comics <laughs> combined right, with a Easter Island face and they're standing on like you know, the lip or something and shooting and it's their, their final stand on Jericho Hill. But I, I thought it was a nice parallel to Roland of the present that he's down to sh just shooting lefty. Yep. Nice catch there. The last info dump that we get is the, as I mentioned earlier, we get the exact years that everybody comes through the door or somehow gets to Roland's world. And Susanna was... 1964, Jake was 1977, Eddie was 1987, and Callahan was 1983. Yep. And that's where we get the 10-year span between Jake and Eddie, and we were, I think we just, we figured out that they are roughly born in the same year. Right. That At the very least, within just a couple of years of each right. other, but very similar. time-wise, yeah. So, the reason why Eddie is 10 years older than Jake is because he lived 10 years more before coming over to Roland's world. Yep. It's one of those time travel, you know, mind bender thingies, but it works and makes sense. Anyway, now we know exactly when. So if we ever need to come back to this, if this ever comes up again, like what year was it that they were there? Like which song, which movie, which, you know, which thing is anachronistic or not? Like, it's all yep. here on the page now. We're going to hold you to it, King. No more, no more time mix ups from now on. Yeah. RoboCop references. <laughs> so, Sean, is it time for us to get into fun stuff? Yeah, I think it is. We've 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 gotten past the info dump. Uh, we have a pretty good sense of, of what's happening here. And as we reach the end of the Toadash section, it's time for our little pieces of fun stuff here. Do you want to start off? Sure. One of the things I, I really liked was King's use of the word promenaders to talk about people walking around, I guess. And... Uh, <laughs> It's a close cousin to another favorite word of mine, perambulate. Mm. <laughs> I was just picturing a bunch of promenaders perambulating and I had a little <laughs> English language squee moment. Uh, my favorite piece of fun stuff in this section was when Callahan is telling the Cotet how Colin Sturgis's decision-making works. So anybody can bring up an issue and they walk around with a feather to all the townspeople and get them to touch the feather. And if enough people do it, then they have a, a meeting. And in the meeting, everyone states their case and then they have a vote. And Roland puts his hand up to his head and shakes it. Democracy. <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> yep. And we can tell, I mean, Roland comes from a very hierarchical leaders who lead. He, he's in a dynastic relationship. You know, his father's the head. He's going to be the next person in line and he can just see democracy, man. It never works. Yeah. I mean, and leadership is based on heredity and a claim to the ancestor of King Arthur, right? Of yeah. Arthur L. So 
Yeah. Interestingly enough, in addition to it being this sort of familial hand down from one generation to the next, there is a meritocracy to it as well. Like it's not just that we're down to the dregs of the monarchy where there's inbreeding and low travelers who who are ascending to the the throne. I mean, you do have to prove your worth in yeah. the final test. So it's not just like, you know, Roland's the product of two cousins who have slept together and he just ascends. I mean, he still has to pass the test to be to get the guns and become a gunslinger, so. Yeah. But at the same time, democracy, man, it's the worst. <laughs> You're right. There there is a distinct quality of merit and it's something that King doesn't explore in the text, which is who gets the right to even train to be a gunslinger? You know, how many people in Gilead could have been phenomenal gunslingers, but are never even sent to go study with court, right? Yeah. Because they're not of the line of Eld or something like that. Um, or they're not men or all sorts of things that are, if we examine them too closely, it would expose a lot of um, maybe not so great biases and things. It's interesting because Roland has to come to terms with that. I mean, the people who are now the next generation of gunslingers mm-hmm. are a 10-year-old boy, a junkie, and a legless woman. You know, like these are the new gunslingers. And I think that that boggles his mind to some extent that, you know, when he first meets them, he's like, really? These are the, these yeah. are who I've drawn? The, th- this is my crew? This is my quartet? Um, obviously now at this point he's come to respect them, but it is got to be a very much a different way of him thinking when he's so used to it being people like himself who've grown up in this world in which there is a distinct difference between the classes and it's my class who becomes gunslingers. Yeah. I suspect King wasn't thinking about the ugly side of monarchy, the ugly side of dynastic succession when he was formulating his, um, the structure of the gunslinger the original book because he wanted it to be romantic. He wanted it to be, he's the last of his kind and he's wandering the earth right. and he, he's in pursuit of his greatest foe. And that's all well and good, but take a step back or a couple steps back from that and look at how did this person come to be and what was the society like that produced him? Oh, it's a monarchy with patriarchy, you know, and subservient women and all this other stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, it's, Kind of not so great from our more modern sensibilities. <laughs> but on the other hand, King is also against populism. I mean, that's sort of John Farson and the good man, right? That mm-hmm. he's trying to rile up the the common folk to rise up and against that position. And he's obviously not a fan of that. And I mean, even if you look at the dead zone, the same sort of thing that where that's a, a populist person who's trying to ascend to the presidency. And right. Johnny Smith has to stop that because he looks down on pop I mean so king does have this other sense of there there needs to be some sort of merit to it I think yeah. and not just a a populist uprising I think his latest tweets also show that if you are familiar with <laughs> Stephen King on Twitter and his his thoughts on that so um but again I think we can all appreciate the fun stuff of Roland shaking his head and saying democracy absolutely <laughs> another fun stuff was that we get a definitive meaning to gun bunnies and Earlier in this book and in Wind Through the Keyhole, I had kind of taken umbrage with this term. I didn't understand what it meant. I just thought it was like an unfamiliar person with gunslingers or perhaps somebody familiar with gunslingers casting a disparaging term. But I guess what it really, it does mean something specific and that's why it is disparaging to a gunslinger. 
because it's used in context that Jonas and his gun bunnies, someone refers to them from Wizarding Glass. So that, to me, translates to the definitive meaning of somebody who carries a gun, uses a gun, is maybe even competent with a gun, but is not a gunslinger. So by calling a gunslinger a gun bunny to their face is, while risky, (laughs) a pretty big insult, (laughs) right? So when the kind of lousy sheriff's deputy in the town in went through the keyhole calls Roland and Jamie gun bunnies to their faces because they're so young, but yet they carry the guns and claim to be gunslingers. This guy just can't believe it. He won't accept the fact. So it is a pretty big insult. Yeah. And it was fun to see it used in a context that let me fully understand this term. Yep. Um, We also get a little bit of a back to the future type of reference when the characters start to look at the book that Jake has brought over from his world, the Charlie the Choo Choo book, and mm-hmm. names and information are starting to fade away, much like uh, McFly's picture of his family, where, where things are starting to fade away from it, and you wonder, what can they do to stop this? Yeah. Will they need to go back to the future? Do they become assholes or something? <laughs> Worse. And just like in Back to the Future, Susanna is completely unwilling to believe that Ronald Reagan becomes president, just like Doc. She thinks it's so unlikely that she's convinced that Eddie has put Jake up to continuing it as well, just to continue to to carry this as a joke for her. Yeah. Like she just can't wrap her head around it. And this comes up when they're Todash and they see a paper that says President Carter does such and such or or did such and such. And she's like, who's Carter? And then she's like, and I still don't believe that story you keep telling me about Ronald Reagan. Ha, you know, (laughs) guy from bedtime for Bonzo is the president of the United States. Inconceivable. And so we get the double back to the future reference on that. So one thing that it it took me, uh, me talking to you before I figured it out is at the very end of this section, Jake picks up a bag in the vacant lot. Mm-hmm. And at first, it seems like it's just maybe a paper bag or a plastic bag. It's not very clear. But when they get back from Todash, he still has it with him. And it seems like it's made out of chain mail. Yeah. And it's the size of a bowling bag, uh, much like he did when he was a bowler back when he was a kid. And it says on the side, nothing but strikes at Midworld Lanes. And he's like, well, that's not quite right, but whatever. And I was trying to think like, well, obviously the bag's important. What are they going to put in the bag? And for some reason, my mind immediately went to, oh, there's going to be a decapitated head in the bag because <laughs> I've just seen that trope in so many movies and 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 things or cartoons where Jerry and Tom have a they somebody gets beheaded and their head ends up in a bowling bag and gets pulled down the lane. I think you're confusing them with Itchy and Scratchy. I don't remember <laughs> Severed Heads and Tom and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> you might be onto something, but regardless. I've seen I've seen severed heads in bowling bags, and that's the first thing that I came up with. But you have a much more realistic potential use for that bowling bag, which I don't know if we want to spoil or not. It might be moderately fascinating. But when you said what it could potentially be for, I said, oh, yes, that makes a lot more sense than a decapitated head. I'm sure that whatever ends up going in that bag will be moderately fascinating indeed. Yes. Well... If there's anything that is bowling ball shaped that's been introduced in this chapter so far, maybe that should be where your mind leads, but we won't spoil it yet. You're being so moderately fascinating, Sean. Cut it out. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, yeah. So now that we're 
through our fun stuff, we wanted to share a couple of iTunes reviews and some social media shout outs that we had. So we recently had a another great review, a five-star review on iTunes from Empress William, who states, my favorite thing about this podcast is the amount of other books and series it's led me to. Hearing all the overlapping from other King's stories and tidbits of information, I actually sometimes find myself talking to you as if I'm involved in the group discussion. Great job. Well, here you are, Empress William. We're talking to you right now. Thank you for that very kind review. Yes, thanks, Empress William. And I love your screen name on iTunes. Awesome. Um, and uh, on Facebook, we heard from R.W. Franklin. She shared our page on Facebook and she added to her share, if you've ever read or are thinking about reading the Dark Tower series, this podcast is awesome. It's been a while since I read The Gunslinger, so listening to their first few episodes are really helping me connect some things now that I'm on book five. Thanks, RW. We really appreciate you spreading the word on Facebook so that other folks will discover our show and join the conversation. And uh, your comment on our show is very flattering. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and you're going to have to slow down with your reading because we'll be on book five for at least a couple more months, I think, uh, before moving on to book six. So don't get too far ahead of us and spoil anything for us. <laughs> and we also got a comment from Roy Dallas on Facebook. And I announced the upcoming episode that came out last week, and it happened to be on Valentine's Day. And Roy Dallas said, uh, how nice, fellas, a Valentine's gift for us all. And I've not even gotten you guys a card. Well, that's all right, Roy. You don't need to get us a card. We know you love us anyway. So thanks for uh, posting that on Facebook and thanks for keeping the conversation going on our social media sites. And Roy, we choo choo choose you. We also recently got an email from Tim Harris. Uh, he wrote to us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And he had a lot of nice things to say, including saying that we feel like members of his extended quartet which is great because our content's getting very large with all of our listeners and interactors. So we appreciate that. Uh, Tim, hopefully you uh, are liking the way that we're now pronouncing Kala. He had a number of suggestions on how we should pronounce things, and we at least took one of them. All right, so that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at Two Guys Dark Tower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Two Guys Dark Tower. And join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Two Guys Dark Tower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 5 of the Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, Part 2, Chapters 1 to 4. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Bitter, baby.